1950s. It's different than what's popular now. In the 60s, it was different. It seems like you're getting, you know, thinner and more athletic as we go along in the decades. But, it, you know, the type of body that is ideal for a woman changes over the decades and over the centuries. And how much suffering exists in our culture from women who compare themselves against ideal body types? It's just astounding how much suffering there is. And, um, and it, it belongs to the world of comparative thinking. We take who we are, some aspect of who we are, and we compare ourselves to some ideal or some other people that do it better or have it better or do something. So we'll do a little exercise. Close your eyes. And now uh, remember or think about the kind of negative body images that you've carried with you. How how it's felt to be too much that or too little this. Concerning your hair or your nose or your forehead or your stomach or your legs or your ears. There's no shortage of things to look at. Remember your thoughts you had about it. Remember what it was like to feel those thoughts. Remember the preoccupations, concerns you had and what you wanted to do about it. And then take a deep breath and let go of that. And now, sitting here quietly with your eyes closed, what is your body's experience of itself? If you allow yourself to feel your body without thought, without the ideas of what goes on in your body, what is your body's experience of itself like? What's the difference between these two experiences of the body? So please open your eyes. So please, some of you, what did you notice was the difference between these two different modes of being present for your body? Did you see a difference? Feel a difference? I noticed that um, the one, you know, when I'm comparing and when I'm not enough or whatever it is, I close down. I become small. When I'm not busy doing that, I'm much more expansive, much more open. <coughs> it's perfect. I mean, that's that's really what it is. When I, when you just sit and feel your body. So when you just feel, sit and feel your body, it's perfect. But when you sit, when he sits and c- compares himself, not enough this or whatever, then he contracts and it's painful. Someone else. Yes. So, uh, my butt's supposed to be really too big, but when I sit on the hard floor, it doesn't seem like that much. <laughs> <laughs> so the butts don't know they're too big or too small. But in and of themselves, they're just fine, thank you. Yes. 
these periods of thinking about what what's wrong or what you think is wrong or is, is all up in the head and thinking. The experience of just feeling what it is to be in the body doesn't really feel like anything at all. <laughs> so I guess it's just a it's just there. It's not one thing or another. The other thing is <laughs> Great, thank you. Anyone else? Yes, in the back. What I felt is that um, when I was thinking about what my body should be uh, next to these ideas or whatever, I was pulled away from where my body is. And right now, I've got a sore shoulder. And that's not perfect, but it's what it is. And I noticed that when I was thinking about ideas, I went away from where my body really Thank you. So one more, last one, please. Well, pretty much my whole life, I, uh, my thoughts about myself when they were adequate. I was too young at <coughs> that time. Too, I was too thin, and I was too this, and I was too that. Now I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to think of it that way for now. Uh, but I noticed that my mind, when I was listening to the kitchen tonight, and I was, we were talking about how much fun it was that our bodies had another idea of what it was like, which is, your back hurts, it's painful. I, I kind of came up with this funny idea that my, my body is like my adult shoulder and doesn't ask my permission for anything. So I think that my body is not, not self-actualized in a way that it just sort of does a thing. It hurts or it doesn't hurt, but there's no uh, contemplation or, or uh, any kind of uh, ideal idea it just has, and it's always been that way. So it's certainly much more real just to feel our body than it is to apply or see it through the filter of our thoughts. And I suspect that a good number of you found it much more pleasant just to be present for your body's experience of itself than it was to see your body through these kinds of images and ideas and comparative thinkings that might exist. So in and of yourself, just like the flower in and of itself is not it just is what it is, it's a lot more freeing and much more pleasant and much more kind of the doorway into deeper practice of vipassana, mindfulness, to learn how to rest in our emness, in I am, and just to be your beingness, than it is to rest or live in all your various thoughts you have about yourself, the comparative ideas of who you are. The comparative, any comparative idea of who you are is not who you are. It's arbitrary. In the same way that I can call this the big or small flower, depending which one I hold it up against. Um, if I tell you that I am a lousy basketball player, it's a, what's, what would be appropriate response from you would be to say, compared to what? Compared to who? Rather than saying, well, yes, I'm sorry for you, that's too bad, I guess. <laughs> compared, to, compared to who? Compared to Michael Jordan, I'm not so good. <laughs> Compared to the 10-year-old down the street, I'm pretty hot. <laughs> I choose who I compare myself to. But that, that choice of compar comparison is often invisible to us. And so we can feel bad. Oh, I'm such a terrible this or that. Our comparative thinking. 
But who are we when we don't compare? Who are we when we just allow ourselves to be who we are? Our life's experience of itself. Some years ago, a couple of years ago, I was um, visiting some friends who had a young daughter who was maybe two and a half then, learning to speak. And um, it was kind of interesting, so I, I wanted to, I asked her who these different people were in the room. I pointed to her, her mother and said, who's that? And she said, Mommy. Who's that? Daddy. Who's that? Tamara. I pointed to me. Who's that? Who's this? Gil. And then I pointed to her. Who's that? Who are you? And she said, I am. (laughs) So I was a lot slower than you are. (laughs) So we did it again. Mommy, Daddy, Tamara, Gil. Who are you? A little bit more energy this time. I am, she said. (laughs) So I still didn't get it. (laughs) So, you know, I'm not familiar with, um, I wasn't so familiar with the Old Testament where Moses asks the name of God, you know, God, who are you? And what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. So I didn't know that, so. I asked her again, and this time with great energy and kind of indignation, she said, I am. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that time I got it. Who am I to put her in a box in a category? It'll happen soon enough. Now, I have an t- almost two-year-old at home who we're raising, and uh, my wife um, kind of has decided that um, we're not going to tell him that he's a good boy. What we do is we tell him that was a good job. And the reason is that if we, the idea is that if we tell him that he's doing, he's a good boy, it's a setup for later suffering. Because then he's an identity that he assumes, I'm a good boy, and then it's possible to be a bad boy, it's possible to disappoint someone else and then feel bad about oneself because you're holding this kind of concept, I'm a good boy, to set up. But to say, that was a good job, or that was really fun, or that was a nice activity, or whatever, uh, to somehow refer to the activity rather than the identity, our hope is we'll maybe make a little bit of a difference as he's growing up. <laughs> but you know, it's not going to make that big of a difference. <laughs> <laughs> It'll solidify the idea. So soon enough. But, but hopefully it'll be kind of a healthier sense of self or concept. Because what we do as we're growing up, we often we can start solidifying or kind of having some more fixed ideas of who we are. And some of those concepts are healthy and useful. I mean, my son needs to learn something about hitting. You know, he needs to learn about other kids and he needs to learn about empathy and sharing and all these wonderful concepts. So he has a lot to learn about self and other. But as he learns that and learns empathy and generosity and respect of others and things, um, I hope to guard a little bit from, from reifying some particular fixed concept. I have uh, one person came uh, talked to me recently who said that one of the formative influences on his life was his mother 
probably in, in uh, he, he felt probably not, probably with good intentions, without meaning harm or anything. His mother periodically would tell him, would refer to him or describe him as, oh, uh, he's a good boy, but not very smart. So, so that became solidified. That became, he incorporated, of course, you know, your mother tells you that, that must be who you are. And there's a lot of these things we incorporate. Other people do the comparisons for us, thank you. And then we assume this must be the case. When I was in seventh grade, I took my first art class. And I was drawing, I was drawing one day in class, and the teacher came over to me and said, Oh, you don't have any artistic talent. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> so, you know, who was I? I didn't, you know, I didn't really care that much, but, you know, it wasn't like a problem. But I just, well, that's the way I guess that's true. You know, and I didn't, ever, I didn't really ever suffer from it. I just assumed it was the case. That's the way it is. Some great authority had told me. And it wasn't until a uh, freshman in college that I was tricked into uh, painting and drawing. And then it turned out I had a little bit of talent. Um, but so we have these ideas about ourselves. We, they get fixed. We have some experiences in life, some particular experiences or repeated experiences, or people tell us who we are or inform us who we are. And, and, um, and then we kind of go through the, the life thinking that's who we are, out of that fixed idea or that comparative idea of who we are. Is it necessary to be that way? Are there other ways to be? Part of the function of meditation is to begin unraveling the structures of personality in terms of fixed ideas and fixed comparative ideas that we live and see the world and orient ourselves to the world with. And let those begin to unravel, to let them uh, soften and begin trusting a deeper innate sense of beingness, of just being alive. Just a sense of what it's like to be present without seeing ourselves through the, uh, the medium of our thoughts, our ideas. There's a, um, in the most recent uh, issue of Insight, there's a translation of some words by the Buddha. And one of them, uh, the first line says, fear is born from arming oneself. I think that's very profound, because our, all the various ideas we have about ourselves are often defenses or become defenses, or they become kind of like armor. And here it says, fear is born from arming ourselves. Often, perhaps, fear is maybe part of the genesis for some of these things, but then the very taking on of these fixed identities and ideas, you're taking on something which is actually quite fragile. And makes you much more threatenable than you were before. It kind of does the opposite of what it's, it seems to promise. And actually it becomes a greater source of fear because it can be taken away. So an experience of, of uh, one woman on the retreat this last few days, she came and uh, uh, quite upset. And she said she was sitting outside after lunch, sitting outside on the bench, and she was very peaceful and contented. And any notion of who she was disappeared. And it was quite nice for a while, and then she got really frightened. She didn't have any, because she was so dependent on the idea of who she was, that she was as, as providing the reference point, the orientation for how to 
live her life, how to relate to other people and situations. And without that kind of reference point, who is she going to be? How is she going to be with people? And so we hold on sometimes very tightly to that reference of ideas of who we are. And it's really amazing that sometimes even the painful things we hold on to, I'm so unworthy, I'm so wounded, can function such a centrally important reference of orientation for us that it's actually very frightening to give give up or let go of that which is most painful for us. And we hold on to that which is most painful. But to meet the world, in a sense, naked, to meet the world open and clear, without any reference, this woman found terrifying. And one of the things I told her is that that experience of no self is not supposed to last. But the trust that we discover in relaxing into it, trust that allows it to happen, it's that trust that persists. Soon enough, she'll all her various ideas and of herself, many of them will come back, and she'll find her way through the world just fine. But hopefully, with a much deeper level of trust, so she relates to those concepts and ideas from a very different point of view. We all need concepts and ideas about ourselves. It isn't that comparative thinking is bad in and of itself. But can we hold it lightly? Let go of it as soon as we can, as soon as it's not, no longer needed. Can you sit in meditation where it's so safe and let go of it all? So comparative ideas is a, is a source of tremendous Comparative ideas of self are a source of tremendous suffering. And part of the function of meditation is to undo all that so we can have, discover the trust of just being present. So that's part of the source of our suffering. But there's another aspect of self, selfing. And that is, aside from any comparative ideas, we identify with things. And identify with things means we say that that's the same as me. Somehow that experience or that thing is mine. So if I'm holding this flower here, you know, it's just a flower. In the, in the thusness, the isness, the suchness of the flower, is just a flower. Now, I could give it to someone. Who should I give it to? So, <laughs> all that's happened is I've given it to Margot. Now, Margot can suddenly have the idea that I've given it to hers, and it's hers to keep, it's hers. And I can sit here with the idea, uh-oh, she might get that idea, but it's mine. <laughs> the idea of my, my flower, or her flower, that does not reside in the flower itself. That also belongs to the world of my ideas and concepts. <clears throat> if we all left tonight in different shoes that we came with, <laughs> our shoes wouldn't care. 
<laughs> Me and mine also belong to the world of concepts and ideas. And part of the function of meditation and mindfulness is to begin becoming wiser about the nature of these concepts and ideas. Suzuki Roshi wore glasses sometimes. And there's this wonderful story. And actually, they took a picture just when he was telling the story, so the picture exists. He told a story, he, says, you know, he said, these are not my glasses, but you know about my poor, tired eyes, so you let me use them. Isn't that nice? A little bit of, little bit of an alternative way of relating to his glasses. Mine, yours, his, belong to concepts. It's quite malleable and fluid, much more than we realize. If you go to a supermarket and put food in your cart, it, you know, it's yours, right? Someone else takes something out of your cart, like, well, that's mine. <laughs> but if you're going around, you know, the aisles, and you go to the back aisle or something, and you kind of open one of the boxes to eat the nuts or something in it, <laughs> The store manager comes and says, hey, wait a minute, that's ours, until you pay for it. There's a confusion there about, you know, mine and yours. It's fluid and malleable, me and mine. We have such a strong habit of relating things to ourselves. My depression, my happiness, my pain, my money, my things. Again, in order to discover the phenomenally deep trust that can come from living, it comes from a spiritual life, it's necessary to begin questioning and challenging the notions of mine. All the, all the time, every time you say mine before something, especially things such so personal as my pain, my suffering, my anger. Is it possible, is it reasonable, Maybe to see it as the pain. What happens if you switch the anger, the happiness, the depression? We don't take it so much as mine. Because the assumption that it's mine, that it defines who I am, gets very complicated very quickly. My depression, my anger, this says something about who I am. I am, since it's my depression, I'm angry, I'm, I'm depressed. That is who I am as a person. We can very easily carry that as an identity. And then we don't want other people to have this idea that we are, I am that kind of person. We're ashamed, embarrassed, or angry. And we have all these uncomplicated reactions and responses on top of it because we've associated to, this is mine. I think this is often the case. Can we just, is it possible, is it reasonable just to leave it? Very simple. To leave it just simply as an ache, as pain, <coughs> a feeling, an emotion, a thought. And part of the function of mindfulness meditation is to learn, at least in meditation experience, to learn to leave things alone enough that they can just ex ex exist there in their simplicity, exist there in their thusness, in, in the way they are themselves. <coughs> just like the flower can exist without comparing it to anything else. Can this particular state or mood that you're in, this particular experience of your body, this particular thought, can it exist there in and of itself 
without any comparison to future and past, without any comparison to other ideas and ideals, without any idea of appropriating it to me and mine. What are the disappointments about enlightenment? <laughs> you didn't know this was it's a disappointing experience? <laughs> Is we often, most of us, think, I am going to get enlightened. I will become free. And if I'm free, it's great, right? I'll be the most enlightened guy on the block, and I ho- hopefully everyone will see that, and maybe I'll get free lunches when I go to... But it's a misunderstanding. Enlightenment doesn't make you free. Enlightenment is you giving everything its freedom. It has nothing to do about you at all. That's why it's so disappointing. (laughs) You give the sound of the chuckling in the room its freedom. You give a thought its freedom. You give a sensation, a feeling, a mood. You give the world. You give your friend his or her freedom to be themselves in their thusness, to be as they are without having to impose our ideas, our comparative thoughts, our ideas of mine, yours. There's so much we do that we add. And remember, it wasn't that I get attached to the flower that I gave Margot. Even though I might grasp on it really hard and we have a tug of war for it, it isn't that the fl- I'm attached to the flower. I'm attached to my, my idea that it's mine, or that it should be mine. Our attachments are to ideas. That's why sometimes it's so hard to let go of them, because they're so invisible, they're so insubstantial. So can we just be? Can we be naked to the world? Can we be naked to ourselves? Can we just let go of all concepts and ideas, of me, of mine, and just let our presence, our beingness, radiate and shine as it is? Is it interesting to do that? It's frightening to do that. To some degree, everyone who follows a spiritual path, I believe, or certainly the Buddhist, Buddhist path, is going to encounter fear because of this reason. You're asked at some point to meet the next moment, to meet the world, without holding on to the old reference points of this is who I am, or this is what I, how I need to show myself to others, or how I need to project myself to others, or this is the without an idea of some image you want to convey or protect or defend or, or hide. Sooner or later you'll be asked to, to be completely open. Maybe, maybe it feels exposed, transparent, just to be. And it's inevitable that you'll feel some fear. Some people will feel it more than others. Some people just a little bit. And part of the spiritual practice is to learn to work with that fear. And maybe learn to develop some of the strong qualities, inner qualities, that allows us to meet the fear. Qualities of self-understanding, qualities of compassion, qualities of generosity, qualities of empathy, qualities of connectedness to others, 
taking care of our relationships, ethics. All these things need to be taken care of and have some strength so we can be naked, so we can really be open and undefended in a wise way. And then slowly we begin to replace the fear with trust. And the beautiful thing you'll discover as you begin allowing yourself just to be in the emptiness of self is it isn't empty. But you'll find that in that space there's a gentleness, a tenderness, tenderness of being, a gentleness of being. And intermingled in that emptiness of self, there's a gentleness, a tenderness of compassion and of love. And the the depths of compassion and love that's available to us require us to lower the veils of comparative ideas of who we are, lower the veils of this is who I am, fixed ideas, and just to meet whatever is happening with us in its simplicity, to grant it its freedom, and to discover wonderful things. Ryokan was this great uh, Zen poet who lived in Japan a couple of centuries ago. And um, near the end of his life, he was quite old, he met a a young nun, maybe 20s, late 20s, and they fell in love in, in some way. No one knows what exactly their relationship was. They're both monastics, after all. But they wrote this beautiful love poems back and forth. They'd send, they, would, they didn't live together, they lived in different places, so they'd send these poems back and forth, talk to each other. And this is one of the poems that Ryokan uh, wrote to her. With no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossoms. When the, flowers, when the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. That's a love poem. So he's talking partly about their connection. We naturally follow the way, not knowing each other, not knowing who I am, having this great not, not knowing mind. Don't know. In some ways, not know who we are. Because we can't ultimately, completely, definitively know, know who we are. No one does. No one knows who they are in that way. But if we can, if we can allow ourselves not to know, or allow ourselves to be undefended or allow ourselves to just be present for life without all the concepts and ideas of self and comparison that we hold on to. We naturally follow our way. We just follow this amazing sense of connectedness and love and compassion can flow in that space. So I'll end with... um, this story by Father Theophane. So I'll end with um, this story by Father Theophane. 
I am a monk myself, and the one question I really wanted to ask was, what is a monk? Well, I finally did, but for an answer I got a most peculiar question. Do you mean in the daytime or at night? (laughs) Now, what could that mean? When I didn't answer, he picked up again. A monk, like everyone else, is a creature of contraction and expansion. During the day, he is contracted behind his cloister walls, dressed in a habit like all the others, doing the routine things you expect a monk to do. At night, he expands. The walls cannot contain him. He moves throughout throughout the world, and he touches the stars. Ah, I thought, poetry. To To bring him down to earth, I began to ask, well, during the day, in his real body, wait, he said, that's the difference between us and you. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense. But here we, start, we tend to start from the other end, the expanded state. The daytime state we refer to as the body of fear. And whereas you tend to judge a monk by his decorum during the day, we tend to measure a monk by the number of persons he touches at night and the numbers of stars. And may all of you discover that great gentleness and tenderness in the emptiness of self. And may you encounter and meet all the ways in which you hold on to self, all the ways in which you're contracted and suffer around self. May you meet that with the same gentleness and tenderness. Be as gentle and tender as you can. Offer offer to yourself today your compassion so that the compassion that you discover in the emptiness supports you in finding that emptiness. So, are there anyone who wants to make any comments or questions tonight? Yes. Uh, Zen stories are peculiar. <laughs> Did the other 84,000 people feel upset? <laughs> they didn't compare themselves. <laughs> yes. This last um, piece that you read to us, um, where did that come from, and who is that? Father Theophane wrote a beautiful book of uh, short stories and drawings about... Uh, someone know the title of the book? The Magic Monastery, maybe? Um, in, in Jack Cornfield's and Christina Feldman's book, uh, now it's called Soul Food. It used to be called Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart. Um, they have a number of these stories in there. So you can probably uh, get the title of the book uh, from the... References there. Yes. Your um, your story, your, your ideas of, of 
how limiting the, limiting the um, concepts are. It gives us some good Years ago, I had an instructor who, uh, at our school who said that most adults draw at the age level that they were first discouraged. It's quite interesting to, to know to know the history of people who are are, are artists at present or, 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 or are making making a living or, or doing very well in art, and they're usually encouraged rather than discouraged. And I, I find it interesting that you were discouraged at an early age and then somehow found a, a way to. Uh, to get back to that. Not, not the usual course of well, as a uh, my roommate in college was a born again artist, <laughs> <laughs> so he pulled it out of me, and I discovered I loved it, and um, so for about a year I started taking art classes at the university, and had a great time, and then um, I even became an art major because that's how you got to take art classes. Not even with, you, and, um, and then I remember there was this magic moment today where I decided that I was an artist. And that was the day I stopped doing art. Isn't that an amazing story too? Because as soon as I had the identity, this is who I'm, I'm an artist, I had this idea that I had to do art to support the identity. And I couldn't do it from that point of view. So I dropped it again for a number of many years until I became a monk. And then the feelings of beingness, feelings of isness, the feelings that I had in meditation became so strong I wanted to put them, um, I wanted to, to express them. And so I did some sculpture, sculpture uh, to put uh, those feelings in, in form. Yes? Well, you're not supposed to accept things as they are. There's all kinds of things that need to be changed. Comparisons are useful. When I was in the monastery in Japan, I was the tallest <coughs> man in the monastery. It was useful for everyone to notice that because I, I, they would ask me to get the things from the high shelves. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a fair comparison. It was okay. There was no value that I or they assigned to it. I didn't feel bad about it. You know, anything. Just, you know, just a matter of that kind of comparison. So comparison, thinking by itself is not the problem. It's what we do with it, the judgments. I mean, some people have bigger noses than others. I mean, that's a fair assessment in and of itself. <coughs> some people have bigger butts than others. I mean, that's, you know, we don't want to deny that's the fact. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be any assigning of value or meaning to that. It can just be, be there as it is. Um, so comparative thinking by itself is not the problem. Um, but, if all, um, but the question of oh, when it's appropriate to change things in the world requires all our wisdom and our common sense. But it helps a lot if you have the experience somewhere in your life, and meditation is a good place for that, 
where you've cultivated the ability to sit and be present in an open, receptive way for whatever arises without having to condemn or hold on to anything. In this particular domain of your life, you can reach the zero point where you're not going to be run by your preferences and likes and dislikes. You can just sit with them. You can have them, but you're not run by them. You sit there and you have the ability of just being present for your beingness. Pain arises. You don't. You accept it. Feelings arise. You accept them. Thoughts arise. You accept them. You see them clearly for what they are. To reach that zero point of kind of not reaching forward, not pulling back, gives us a very powerful vantage point from which to understand when we go into the world about how we should relate to things. Because then we can use that vantage point to help us understand um, uh, maybe better when it's appropriate to act and when not to act. We can tell the difference between when we're reacting and when we're responding. Because we know what it's like not to react or respond at all, to leave things alone. To have, we're comfortable enough with ourselves. We know that we have the ability in ourselves to come to that zero point. So it gives us a tremendous power and tremendous uh, uh, possibility to understand things. What we're asked to do in meditation, or spiritual life, in Buddhist spiritual life, is to find a way to let our heart or our awareness be uncontracted. Our heart and our awareness is open, in a sense, accepting of everything. But our discriminating mind, our empathy, our actions in the world will fix things up. You know, so, so we can act. Is it possible to act? For example, if someone, um, if you see some injustice in the world, something that needs to be done, someone, you know, something terrible is happening, someone's getting beat up, can you go step in and do what has to be done with your body and still re- keep the awareness uncontracted, keep the heart open. So the awareness accepts it, everything. The awareness doesn't cut anything off. The awareness doesn't deny anything or exclude anything from its awareness. It doesn't say, oh, this is... The awareness itself says, doesn't say, this is unacceptable for awareness. The luminous, open awareness stays the same. Most of us will contract our awareness or our heart. Can we keep the heart or the awareness open, the mind open, and then do what has to be done? The famous line by T.S. Eliot, teach me to care and not to care. It's really necessary to hold both because we're complex beings. So please, you know, change the world. It needs changing. Does this make sense to you? But first, you know, if you, if you can discover that zero point. Yes. That really kind of opened up to me. It's like, well, enlightenment really is, is, is like, what did you write? You said enlightenment is seeing the freedom in everything around Seeing it, that's good. I, what, I said was, what I said was granting everything its freedom. It's beautiful. Yeah, I really I like that idea. I'm like, no, 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 no. Good. <laughs> Hold on to it until it's the last thing you're holding on to, and then let go of that, too. <laughs> but let it be the last thing. 
<laughs> yes. Good job. A question came to my mind with is that Becca Sherry sophisticated thought, a subtle distinction between the style. Um, not that the style is meant to explain that, but the question that arose in my mind was do we have to develop a sense of self in order to give up? Well, that's a common idea these days. And uh, Mark Epstein wrote a book where he talked about that. You need to have a strong self to let go of a self. Um, to talk about these issues of self simplistically is a little bit problematic. But uh, let me say it this way. Uh, uh, it's fine if in a general sense, kind of like as a gestalt sense, you talk about a self, myself, yourself. It's convenient labels. Um, you know, if I just say, you know, uh, someone here is tired, you know, <laughs> what, what good is that? <laughs> but if I say I'm tired, well then, you know, that, you know, that's a little more useful information. So, so to say I, it's okay to use it in various ways. And the way that the concept of self, the idea of self and I is used, is, it, what it refers to is it, is, is it refers to something different in different systems of thought different philosophies and psychologies. So there's often different psychologies and different philosophies and different cultures will miss each other when they use, they use the same word self, not being aware that there's many different meanings for that word. From a Buddhist point of view, from a Buddhist philosophical or system of thought, you don't have to develop a stronger sense of self to let go of the self. What you need to, but what, what's necessary is it is necessary to develop strength in certain inner qualities. It's important to have a stronger uh, uh, sense of personal ethics, a personal, of empathy, of, of awareness of what goes on within one. It's important to, uh, to develop compassion, generosity, strength of effort, mindfulness, a strength of resolve, and strength, a strength of intention a strength of understanding of karma, of cause and effect. All these inner qualities can be developed. And, and the strength of these make it a lot easier to let go of the reified ideas, ideas and concepts of self. <coughs> now, if some people, if Mark Epstein wants to call that the self, the whole gestalt of those qualities, that's fine. But Buddhism doesn't feel a need to call that a self. It just, those, are, those are just inner qualities that are developed. So, in a sense, we're talking about the same thing, but it's different use of language. And perhaps the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist would say that it's a little bit safer if you avoid the language of self, because it's a generalization where pe people get confused about what we're talking about, if we talk about it philosophically or psychologically. And it's much better to talk about particulars, what's actually going on. And um, make some sense? And, you know, as soon as we say we have a self, you know, it's an innocent thing to say, but it's so quick and easy for us to lash on to that, all kinds of concepts and ideas, culturally conditioned ideas, of what a self is. 
And all you have to do is go, go to some different cultures to see how varied concepts of selves can be. They're quite fluid. So does this address your concern well enough? Okay. Maybe a last question or comment. To uh, kind of follow up on that and make it specific, um, it seems to me, I'm a father, and um, it seems to me that there gets to be sometimes a clash between the feeling of connectedness with others and a feeling of um, separateness and of uh, strength of, of person and of independence. And to put it specifically into an issue I have right now, um, my son has been sleeping in our beds. He's eight years old. Um, we're separated, my, my wife and I, but we follow the same path of parenting. <clears throat> now the issue gets to be um, people are telling us that he needs to sleep in his own bed and be the courage to do that, and that that will help him with interrelating with other children and having um, uh, courage to do things a little more independently. And um, to me, um, basing it on Buddhist psychology and an inspiration I had from Christopher Titmus, who's very specific about this issue, it, I feel that by him staying in our beds, his connectedness with other people will increase. And even at the expense of possibly his independence, that because the real source of suffering is this lack of connectedness with others, um, then um, he's better to stay in the bed. <laughs> All the experts are telling me the opposite. You weigh in on my side. <laughs> well, ask me in six years, <laughs> since our son sleeps with us. So, you know, we haven't faced, we haven't come to that point yet. Um, but, um, so I don't really know what to say about, you know, child-rearing and that level. That's, uh, however, um, it does raise an interesting issue, which is often overlooked, is that um, inherent in the structures of our language, the structures of our social being, structures of who we are, are tensions. They will not go away, except in the experience of release, the experience of luminous presence. But the experience of release, of awakening, doesn't belong to the world of concepts and ideas. And, but as soon as we enter the world of concepts, which is a very much a human world, there are inherent tensions. And if we feel that there shouldn't be tensions, we're going to suffer lots extra. So, for example, there is a tension between being unique individuals, which is, you know, many people want that, and, and want, wanting to be connected to others. And the extreme form of being a unique individual is American individualism, which is a whole ism in itself, which we know has created tremendous feelings of alienation and suffering in our culture. And, um, but if we completely connected to others, completely bonded, then there can be, uh, there can be uh, problems in that realm also. Both, both are you know, possible, and there's a tension between them, and different people follow different realms of the spectrum. There's a tension between, uh, in religious traditions, between the progressives and the conservatives, the people who feel it's really valuable to stay with the tradition, where the traditional way of things are done. And those people feel, no, you need to adapt it to the modern times. 
there's no right answer for this. And there's always going to be a tension. And, and if we don't see that very clearly, then we'll take that tension and, and be in conflict and blame and criticize and be angry and choose sides and us and them. But to kind of feel the tension and kind of recognize it and, and do our best within that. And hopefully, if we, uh, the resolution of it, in a sense, is the experience of release, the experience of being present without any clinging at all. And, um, and my last word on child-rearing. <laughs> I don't know much about child-rearing yet. It's very difficult for me. It's been the greatest challenge I've done so far. Monastic life was a lot easier. <laughs> monastic, monastic renunciation was a lot easier than what I have to deal with now. So it's a challenge. And uh, my hope is that um, since I, I kind of believe it's inevitable to do it wrong. <laughs> I, guess it's, 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 I, think just, I can't see, you know, it's inevitable that we're doing our best to and to let the child, you know, sort it all out when they become an adult. <laughs> you know, to give, the, give them all the resources, give them all the wisdom and understanding and opportunities so that when the time comes, they can sort it out. So that's my philosophy, you know. I hope it's, we'll see, ask me in 20 years. Okay. Someone really wants to say something in the back. Oh boy. summary of the talk. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, may all of you be yourselves. <laughs>